Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. The Valley Fire is burning fiercely in the hills east of San Diego this morning, threatening homes. Cal Fire says more than 2 million acres have now burned throughout the state. I'm Alison St. John, and this is KPBS Midday Edition. Evacuations are expanding in the rural area where the Valley Fire is burning. Yesterday alone here at this shelter, we supported uh, 31 families, that's 96 people, with um, sheltering needs overnight, hotel rooms, and we're continuing to have people trickle in. A new law makes it easier for prison inmates who help fight wildfires to get a job once they get out. That's all ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Temperatures well over 100 degrees broke records all over San Diego County this weekend as firefighters battled the Valley Fire that has burned over 10,000 acres and continues to burn east of Hamul this morning. Governor Gavin Newsom has declared a state of emergency for five California counties where wildfires are burning, including San Diego and San Bernardino counties in Southern California, plus three Northern California counties. Wildfire blazes have now burned about 2 million acres in our state so far, and this is officially the worst fire season in California history already, with peak fire season still ahead. Here to bring us the latest on the Valley Fire currently burning in San Diego's East County is Cal Fire Captain Kendall Bortiser. Kendall, glad to have you on the program. Hello, Allison. Pleasure to be with you. So what is the status of the Valley Fire right now? Well, we know that uh, right now the fire is uh, over 10,000 acres. Uh, our containment number is still at 1%. We don't like that number. Uh, we want to see that number come up, certainly, because that's the number that really tells us that we're starting to get a handle on this and make progress. So uh, 1% is not very much. As the crews remain out there 24 hours a day, uh, they are they are making progress. And uh, over time, we will start to see that, that containment number come up. And what direction is the fire burning right now? Where is it headed? 
Well, we've been seeing the fire burning in a westerly direction. Uh, we know that we have Santa Ana winds coming in uh, perhaps tonight or tomorrow. So uh, as we know all too well living in San Diego, that's always a game changer for us when the winds come in. Right. Um, we did have a little respite, I think, overnight. Was that accurate? Yeah, I guess it's a, if there's a positive thing to say, it's uh, that the fire only grew by about 400 acres overnight. But that's uh, that's typical. We expect that. We know that uh, during those evening hours when the, the temperature uh, goes down and the humidity rises, uh, we know that we're, we're, we're not going to see very large fire growth at night uh, unless there's winds involved in it, uh, which was exactly the case last night. But then, as we know, once the sun comes up, the ground heats up, uh, the humidity drops, and we start seeing some wind, that's when the, uh, that's when the fire really takes off. You mentioned it's at 1% containment currently. What does that mean exactly? Well, containment is, uh, what containment is, it essentially means that we have a line around the fire. We can get containment uh, one of a few different ways. We can get containment with bulldozers. Uh, we can get containment with hand crews. Uh, it means essentially that the fire is surrounded on all sides and there's a, with a boundary, but uh, it's still burning. And even though we may have, uh, I've seen fires here in San Diego that have been 75% contained and the fire jumps over the fire line and now we have a whole new fire take off. So the containment number, uh, we want that number at 100%. And that's, that's what the goal is, is to get a line surrounding the complete fire. So where are you expecting the fire to, to go today and then tomorrow as well, where things might change? Well, the fire is, uh, as I said, it's continuing to move um, perhaps into the, the, uh, the Hauser Canyon area. Uh, we did just recently put out some evacuation uh, orders. And so uh, we've been, uh, we put them out via not only the Sheriff's Department, but the County of San Diego, uh, Cal Fire, the Forest Service and essentially is telling people that they uh, they need to get out of that area. And those areas that we just recently issued those evacuation orders for were uh, the Corral Canyon off-road area and Bobcat Meadows and also Los Pinos. So those are the areas of concern right now. Uh, we're sending early warning to those folks so that we can uh, get them out early in the event the fire does go down into those areas. What are the areas where people have already been evacuated? Primarily the Carvaker area off of uh, Hapitool Road uh, that's where the uh, the majority of, of uh, the fire has been. Is is on as you see, as you drive up the eight, you can see it off to the off to the right there. Um, but the uh, or I guess if you're going south on the eight or uh, east on the eight, you'll see it off to the side. But the uh, um, the Carvaker area has been primarily it, and then there have been a lot of roads that have been evacuated as well. I don't have that list in front of me. I understand about about ten more than ten properties have have gone so far, right? Yes, we have had uh, we have had some uh, residences and some uh, outbuildings, sheds, uh, things like that that have been destroyed, and uh, so that uh, you know we certainly don't like uh, hearing about that. But there have been structures destroyed in this fire. I understand that the military now is being called in to help. What sort of resources do you have, and and how will that assist you? Yeah, that's uh, assists us tremendously. It's another tool in our arsenal. Uh, you know, thanks to the, the proactive efforts of CAL FIRE, the, uh, we're, we're exercising our agreement today that we have with the Navy Third Fleet and the First Marine Expeditionary Force, and that's what allows us to utilize military aircraft on the fire. So we're going to have a number of those folks here this afternoon that are going to be assisting us 
uh, fighting the fire right alongside with us. What kind of air power do you have currently? Well, we have uh, both fixed-wing uh, aircraft, which are our air tankers, and also rotary-wing aircraft, which are the helicopters. So now, what is CAL FIRE's strategy at this point, you know, bearing in mind that there could be a Santa Ana wind tomorrow and it's 1% contained? I mean, do you have a – is there something you're hoping to see will happen today? Well, we're certainly hoping that Mother Nature would cooperate with us a little bit and uh, keep the Santa Anas out of here, drop some t the temperature, bring some humidity up, and uh, let our folks get a handle on this. But we know that that's probably not going to happen, so we have to have a plan in place that uh, – in the event that uh, we have to work within those parameters, we've got, uh, you know, folks in place, equipment in place, resources in place, and we're doing that, obviously, from the air and the ground. Our uh, aerial assets, we've got a lot of uh, aircraft assigned to this incident that's working, and then all of our ground resources, our bulldozers, our hand crews, uh, our, our engine companies, the boots on the ground, the firefighters, several hundred firefighters assigned to this incident. So... Uh, we're tackling it from every angle we can, and uh, certainly the priority is uh, early activation, getting in and letting the folks know that are in the fire's path that uh, they need to get out. And uh, as you know, when we talk about an evacuation order, we're telling you it is not safe for you to be in your home. You need to get out right now. It's dangerous, and we don't want you to stay behind. Uh, you know, staying behind and trying to protect your property puts you in a very, very dangerous situation, and it poses a threat that Ultimately, you could get in a, uh, a situation where you need to be rescued, and now we got to pull firefighters off the lines to come and make a rescue. So by all means, if you're issued that order, if you feel the threat, if you feel in danger, pack up your belongings, grab your family, all those valuables, and get out. So right now it's burning very rural areas, but it's, what, 10, 20 miles from the rural-urban interface? How close is it to, to more populated areas, especially if it uh, turned around and burned west? Right. Yeah, the majority of areas we've been seeing it burn in uh, are exactly, as you say, rural areas, homes that are spread, uh, you know, mix, uh, mixed with the brush uh, throughout the, the hills there. And so, uh, you know, the, the strategy is to get crews in there, engines in there, uh, and, and do their very best to defend those homes, defend those structures, get the people out. You know, that that's what makes it the challenge. It's not a heavily populated residential community where you've got several homes right on top of each other. This is homes that are up long dirt roads and uh, in rare, very rural settings. So, you know, the sheriff gets in there early, they make those notices, and then we do our best to get engines in there. But uh, as folks know, I mean, we've only got so much, so many engines, we don't have the ability to put a fire engine at every single house. Now's the time to be thinking about preparedness, and CAL FIRE has a website, www.readyforwildfire.org. Kendall, thanks so much for uh, bringing us this update. You're very welcome. That is CAL FIRE Captain Kendall Bortiser. Now we're turning to KPBS reporter Joe Hong, who is at the Valley Fire Evacuation Center. Welcome, Joe. Thank you. So where exactly are you? Where's the center? So I am at the Joan McQueen Middle School in Alpine. It's a little uh, southwest of, of where the main fire is spreading right now. Um, there are currently uh, just Red Cross volunteers here and a couple families that have uh, found refuge here. So we understand that, that people are being given hotel vouchers to lessen the chance of, of the spread of COVID. Is it clear how many have received vouchers as opposed to coming to your, your larger center where they would have been crowded together? Yeah, that's, uh, that's correct. So um, that's an important distinction to make right now, considering uh, the pandemic is still raging in this 
region. Uh, the Red Cross has emphasized that folks aren't really sheltering here. They're being re-evacuated to local hotels and motels that have sort of offered uh, rooms for evacuees. Um, I spoke with a volunteer named Andrea Fuller, who she's a volunteer public information officer for the Red Cross, and she gave me a sense of how many families uh, they've been able to serve. Yesterday alone here at this shelter, we supported uh, 31 families, that's 96 people, with um, sheltering needs overnight, hotel rooms, and we're continuing to have people trickle in as the word gets out that we are here for you. We're the Red Cross, pandemic or not, we are here for you to provide you relief, comfort, and any support services that we can. So that's almost 100 people that have been evacuated, maybe more by now. Have you had a chance to talk to any of them? Yeah, I spoke with Danielle Beliveau. She uh, she was actually able to spend the night here. Um, she has some pets and she wasn't able to find a hotel that would accommodate them. But uh, she was very up close to the fire when she was evacuated. Um, here's a clip from her. You know, we kind of get complacent because our firefighters do such an awesome job. Um, you know, we think, oh, they'll knock this down. Oh, you know, <laughs> I mean, it, the fire wasn't that far from me, obviously. And I went, oh, yeah, okay, I'll hook up the horse trailer. It'll be fine. And then all of a sudden you just see flames coming towards you and going, okay, this is huge. This is out of control. <laughs> this is explosive. And that's the only word I can think of is it exploded. She's here, like I said, with her pet. She has a cat and two big uh, wolf dogs right now. And she's grateful for everything that the Red Cross has provided them um, for her and her, uh, her partner. But uh, she said she could really use a shower right about now. Hmm. I understand there are also people staying in their cars and RVs. Have you seen any of that? I know uh, Danielle Beliveau told me that up until last night, she, she had to stay in her car, um, but the, uh, the school was able to accommodate her last night just because it, it got so hot. Um, right now, I don't see any RVs or, or folks uh, staying out in their cars. Um, it, the parking lot looks fairly empty right now. So what kind of precautions are they taking at the shelter to prevent any kind of COVID-19 problems? The Red Cross volunteers are doing temperature checks for everyone who enters. Um, I had to get my temperature checked uh, to walk in to talk to people here today. Um, they're also, you know, there are tables set up with uh, plastic dividers. So uh, they're really enforcing that social distancing and they're just disinfecting all the tables and chairs as well. So what kind of services are being provided at the center? Yeah, so uh, evacuees are getting hot food. They're getting water. Uh, they have plenty of Gatorade. Um, they're when they can. They're providing pet food. Although the Red Cross uh, urges folks to bring pet food for their pets when they can. Can you see any evidence of the fire from the evacuation center at all? Is there a bad air quality? What can you see? Yeah, I mean, I don't see uh, a ton of smoke. I, I'll say the air is um, generally pretty gray, but I don't see any like rising smoke or ash or anything like that. Um, no sort of immediate threat of a fire around here, it looks like. The area where the fire is burning is very rural, and of course a lot of people out there have animals, and some have large animals and livestock. Uh, what do you know about what kind of options are are there for people who have animals that are at, at risk? Yeah, so uh, it seems like the Red Cross and the evacuees themselves are kind of scrambling to get their larger, larger animals housed. Um, 
Danielle Beliveau, who we heard from earlier, uh, her she has two horses and her vet was able to find a stable for them where they could keep their two horses. So um, folks are really just doing what they can to, to find shelter for their large animals. There's a temporary evacuation point for large animals. Uh, the County Animal Services South Shelter is at 5821 Sweetwater Road in Bonita. People who need help to evacuate animals from the bushfire can call the San Diego Humane Society at uh, 619-299-7012 and then press 1. So, Joe, thanks very much for your reporting. Thank you. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Allison St. John. For decades, prison fire crews have been battling California's wildfires, risking their lives for a few dollars a day. Once they get out, it can be a challenge finding a job fighting fires as a professional. But this month, the California legislature passed a bill that would allow incarcerated people who sign up for prison fire crews to have some crimes expunged from their records, making it easier for them to get a job on the outside. Ariella Markowitz has a story about two friends who met at a prison fire cramp whose dream was to reinvent themselves and figure out a way to help other former inmates get firefighting jobs too. Brandon Smith is from a city nestled in the San Gabriel Mountains called Altadena. My backyard and stuff is in the mountains. I've seen fires, right, all my life, but I never knew about wildland firefighting. He remembers watching the 1991 firefighting movie Backdraft as a kid, and it did not leave a good impression. It's a living thing, Brian. It breathes, it eats. I remember being a child, you know, watching Backdraft and telling my mom, like, a firefighter is not something that I wanted to do. As a young adult, Brandon got addicted to drugs and ended up at Wasco State Prison when he was 22. He wanted to keep his head down, hopefully get a sentence reduced. Three years in, his prison counselor approached him and asked if he wanted to fight fires. So at first I said no, but like I had talked to some folks and I, I realized it was going to be like a way better situation for me, especially like while incarcerated. He wouldn't be behind four concrete walls. His family could visit him at fire camp. The food would be better. He'd make $1.65 a day, plus an extra dollar an hour during fire emergencies. It was the highest paying job, so you'd have to be like tripping to deny it, you know? And so I just took a chance. To get on a fire crew as a California inmate, you have to clear a psychological evaluation. You can't be in for something like arson, murder, or rape. Brandon qualified, and he was sent to a training camp in the Sierra. He still remembers his first fire. And we just kicked into action once that adrenaline got in, like we were working with the firefighters going to go put the fire out. He says it was a shock. But the more he worked at it, the more he learned to love how fighting fires made him feel. 
being incarcerated, folks, folks don't necessarily have the best views of you out there, right? After finishing a 16-hour shift, all right, like riding down in the buggies and everybody's out like saying signs like, thank you, firefighters, thank you, right? And they're talking to us as well. It helped me to like reconnect back with the community and give me like a sense of a purpose. Royal Ramey has a similar story. He's from Highland, just across the valley from where Brandon grew up. He also ended up in state prison, but was transferred to Mississippi because of overcrowding. He was offered a chance to come home to California if he would fight wildland fires in remote areas. I was like, man, this is, I don't know if I could be able to do this. It was just, I'm a great winner. I can lift weights, you know. When you actually like hiking hills and stuff, it's a whole different animal. (laughs) Royal and Brandon met at a fire camp in Hemet in Riverside County. They immediately clicked. They were both sawyers, which means they were the ones in the front holding the chainsaw. And they got kind of competitive. Don't let him say he was better. I was faster on the chainsaw. We were passionate about the saw, you know, too. So we talked about, you know, different strategies. And that rivalry grew into a deep friendship. We talked about just life, trying to come out the situation, you know, with a better attitude, with a better, um, you know, position in life. Brandon was released eight months before Royal in March of 2014. Both their sentences were reduced because they worked on a fire crew. That's the first thing I told my parole officer when I came home. I'm like, hey, man, I know this may sound like a little crazy to you, but I want to be a wildland firefighter. He's like, all right, well, good luck. I spent about 18 months really working, trying to figure it out. I was going to fire stations. I was turning in applications. But he wasn't getting far. Many positions required EMT training, which is hard to get as a felon. Paid positions, not volunteer, were few and far between. And Brandon had to meet with his probation officer, so he couldn't go for opportunities more than 50 miles from Altadena. When Royal was released, he and Brandon decided to enroll in a fire academy in Victorville. It was basically like starting off at square one. But then they met a fire chief from the U.S. Forest Service who happened to be a black woman. And I remember pulling her to the side and saying, like, hey, ma'am, like, here's the situation. I just want to be up front. I've kept trying to hop into this space. Like, I, I can't find no way in. And she was like, look, if you, you know, you try your hardest, I may eventually have an opportunity. A year later, Brandon and Royal were graduating at the top of their class. At least 21 major fires raging in It was 2015. Fires were burning across the state. So that fire chief called Royal and Brandon and recruited them to fight the lake fire near Big Bear. Fire crews are working to get the upper hand on the lake fire, which continues to grow in the San Bernardino National Forest. And next thing you know, we out there on the fire. And in a moment that Brandon credits to divine intervention, he and Royal ran into a prison fire crew and recognized some of the guys. Talking to the fellas, they're like, hey, my, oh my God, y'all did it, y'all, you know, y'all professional firefighters, like, what's up, what's up, help us out. Both of us knew, like, we need to go help these people out. Fighting the lake fire got them in the door. Royal got a job with the Forest Service in San Bernardino. Brandon in Sonora. Just getting to work was a struggle all on its own. It's funny because Brandon, he this dude didn't even have a car. He didn't let nothing stop him. Like we don't, we don't. One of the biggest things that me and Brandon we both have in our, of a core in our souls is that don't make no excuses for yourself. 
Brandon was literally getting rides from coworkers to fight fires, sometimes traveling hours each way. And on top of that, he was going to prison fire camps, talking to incarcerated firefighters about how to find jobs in the Forest Service. In 2015, Brandon and Royal decided to found a nonprofit organization called the Forestry and Fire Recruitment Program. They partner with local governments like LA County to give paid on-the-job training to former inmates and help with state firefighting applications. Since 2015, they've helped over 100 people find work in the Forest Service. Folks who graduated from their program are fighting the fires across California now as engineers, leading crews, and flying helicopters. But I am curious about like your feelings about having been introduced to this path while you were in prison. What are your thoughts on just like prison labor in general? Is folks getting shortchanged a little bit? I'm pretty sure, yeah. But then, you know, I, I endured what I endured and I benefit from it. And I wouldn't change nothing. You know, me personally, I wouldn't change nothing. Brandon also wouldn't change anything about his life, but he would change the system. I believe that us as a country, we have a heavy dependence on the use of incarcerated people as laborers. We get the same training out here. We get the same, if not more, experience than the firefighters out here. But when folks come home from prison or come home from these fire camps, they're not able to utilize the skills that they've learned. Brandon says the new bill headed to the governor's desk is a step in the right direction. It would allow some formerly incarcerated people to get their crimes expunged so they can be more easily hired at fire stations. It would also allow them to end parole early to actually travel to wildfires across the state. But, of course, it's just a step. With California burning the way it's burning, Brandon wants the state to do more to create a new pipeline to better support formerly incarcerated people looking to make a living wage on the fire lines. For the California Report, I'm Ariella Markowitz in Los Angeles. Local organizations are now sprinting to make sure there's an accurate census count this year after the Trump administration significantly curtailed counting in San Diego. As part of our Every 30 Seconds series in collaboration with The World, KPBS reporter Max Rivlin-Nadler tells us just how important this year's census is to Latino political power in agricultural communities. Census organizers have been worried about a possible undercount in Latino communities for years. Those worries intensified when the Trump administration announced that in-person counting in San Diego will end September 18th, weeks before it was supposed to. The census determines how much money and how much political representation these communities will have for a decade. Organizers like Paola Araceli Ilescas say a Latino getting counted in 2020 can bring about even more change than casting a single vote. For instance, this year's CARES Act, the pandemic relief funding bill, was allocated based in part on the 2010 census. I know we talk about time. We tell them, you count yourself this year, you're making sure you count for the next 10 years. You don't count yourself this year, you basically are not receiving or don't exist for these next 10 years. And guess what? We're going to lose $2,000 each year for each person that doesn't count for the next 10 years. Ilescas works for the Vista Community Clinic. She organizes agricultural workers from Mexico and Central America who work the avocado fields. Many of these workers can't vote. Their children, many of whom are U.S. citizens, are still too young to vote. So to participate politically, Ilescas wants them to get counted. 
That's not always easy, says Ileskas, especially when it comes to undocumented and mixed-status families. Many of them still have said that other people have expressed uh, distrust. Are, are they really the employees, or are they faking to be the employees in order to, to get them? Because for years we've been saying, don't open the door to uh, ICE officials. This is your right, right? And you know now we're saying, open the door. <laughs> That transition takes trust between census organizers and the community. But other issues like wildfires and pandemic relief are taking priority. On a recent sweltering day in San Marcos, wildfires threaten rural communities across the state. Arcela Nunez Alvarez, a community organizer, planned on leading a group of volunteers to pass out census literature outside of a low-income housing development. But the volunteers were redirected. A wildfire had just broken out in a farm worker community. We work with a lot of adults. Many have very limited formal education. They've had to work their entire lives, but care about their community. Nunez Alvarez grew up here. She understands the importance of messaging coming from members of the community. These leaders then live in apartment complexes like the ones here around us. So they're members of the community, they speak the language of the community, they look like the community that we're trying to reach. She says that while many community members can't vote, that doesn't mean they don't have a role to play in getting resources to their community. These are communities that have been politically disengaged or disenfranchised and undercounted, you know, in the census. Miguel Hernandez is an organizer with Comité Cívico del Valle, which is helping spearhead census efforts in the Imperial Valley. He said that going virtual is not always an option for census organizing. You know, that particular thing might work for the other communities, but, you know, for, for Imperial County, there's, uh, you know, people that first do not have access to the internet or do not have the literacy on how to operate a computer. He's worried that not having that face-to-face -face interaction during the pandemic has set them back. That having a direct conversation and, you know, probably sharing a, a coffee or, you know, unas conchitas, pan dulce or something like that with their neighbors. That, that's the way our community wants to be approached. That's the way our community feels uh, confident to the information you've given them. Time is running out for Latino communities, undocumented immigrants and citizens who have just a few more days to make themselves count and a decade to live through the results. Max Wilhelm Adler, KPBS News. KPBS On Demand is supported by Bill Howe Plumbing, Heating and Air, Restoration and Flood Services. Family owned and operated for three generations, Bill Howe has been serving the plumbing, heating and air and water damage needs of the San Diego area since 1980. With their fleet of trained professionals, Bill Howe has the ability to service all major and minor plumbing and HVAC emergency needs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Bill Howe is committed to providing excellent service to their customers with transparent quotes and attention to detail on every job. Whether you're in need of an HVAC installation, plumbing, or water damage restoration in San Diego, they offer the convenience of scheduling an appointment over the phone, online, or through live chat on their website. Call 1-800-BILL-HOWE or visit billhowe.com because we know how. You are listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Allison St. John. Even if you're not in the path of a wildfire, you've likely been smelling and breathing the smoke that's been blanketing many parts of the state. And as we've seen with the COVID pandemic, place and race play a role when it comes to who is affected most by bad air. 
Today, we're heading to one neighborhood in the Solano County city of Vallejo to meet an 11-year-old girl with asthma. It turns out the place where she lives is bad for her health for all kinds of reasons. And as reporter Lee Romney tells us, these recent fires are just the latest to tax her young lungs. Takira lives with her mom and two brothers at the Marina Vista Apartments, a low-income housing development of blocky two-story buildings in downtown Vallejo. Public health experts say it's one of the most unhealthy neighborhoods in the state. Takira was diagnosed with asthma when she was five. Her first big health crisis came three years later. Well, that day when I was having an asthma attack, we started when we were like, I was really, really sick. Takira managed to fall asleep, and in the middle of the night, she says, her cat woke her mom up, yowling. Because I guess, like, my face was all purple and stuff, and I couldn't breathe. Her mom, Shantira Dalton, ran into the living room where Takira sleeps. When I looked at her face, her face was all blue, and I hurry up and put the treatment on her. I immediately rushed her to the hospital that night. They immediately gave her, put a bunch of helium and oxygen at the same time. Takira is thin and lithe, like a blade of wild grass swaying in the wind. She tends to put a positive spin on things, even that emergency treatment of Heliox, which doctors save for the most serious cases. I was put on that for an hour, and then it's kind of getting frustrating being on that for an hour because I couldn't even talk because my mom couldn't understand me because the thing was on my mouth and on my nose. So then it made me feel like, it made me um, sound like a squeaky mouse. Days later, Takira went home with a bunch of new prescriptions. But her records show her mom would run out of key maintenance meds over the next few years, partly because of hitches with her Medi-Cal. That's just one example of how wealth can impact health. Gaps in Takira's treatment made controlling her asthma harder, and she landed back in the ER again and again. Leave your homes. Sonoma County Sheriff's Office, mandatory evacuation order. Leave your homes. That's a deputy's body cam from the October 2017 Tubbs fire. It raged through Sonoma and Napa counties. In the year after that fire, Takira was rushed to the emergency room with bad asthma attacks every three to four months. Not on the days when the smoke was at its worst, but after. I asked Dr. John Balms about this. He's a UC professor of medicine and environmental health sciences who studies the impact of air pollution on kids. Based on what we know from outdoor air pollution and about asthma biology in general, the effects can be cumulative. There's a lot we still don't know about the long-term health effects of wildfire smoke, but a recent Stanford University study showed potentially lasting damage to the immune systems of kids who'd been exposed to fire smoke. And an investigation by Reveal for the Center for Investigative Reporting found a spike in ER visits for lung and heart ailments for kids and adults months after the Tubbs fire. And the fires just keep coming. Schools all around Northern California are closed and people are being told to stay indoors as smoke from the deadly Camp Wildfire continues to drift south. 
The 2018 campfire destroyed the Butte County town of Paradise. And three months after that, Takira was back in the hospital, working very hard to breathe, her medical notes say, unable to hold a long conversation. I was scared because I had to get an IV. And I don't like IVs, but after putting an IV, they always put it in the same arm. But then this runner, you know, I was scared, so she took her time putting the fluid all the way in. Takira put on a brave face about that IV and about the ambulance ride when she was transferred to the pediatric ICU in Oakland a little while later. Can we recover? Will the world ever be a place of peace and harmony? Her mom, Shantiera, is a singer, and Takira says during that time in ICU... She just, like, sometimes just sing. Especially during mom's long overnight stays next to her daughter. It was like a little couch that lets out to a bed. Mom says these hospitalizations have been terrifying. I just remember crying a lot because they kept coming in, in the room doing extra stuff to her. One thing you should know, black kids like Takira are disproportionately affected by asthma. They're more likely to be hospitalized for it and even to die from it, especially in low-income neighborhoods like hers, where more black people live than anywhere else in Vallejo. That's because they're often more exposed to air pollution from industry and freeway soot. But Dr. Baum says also... Discrimination, uh, poor housing, um, poverty crime, negative aspects of neighborhoods such as noise, garbage. So wildfire smoke, he says? Is likely to differentially impact kids in these neighborhoods. During every wildfire, Takira's mom says she follows public health advice to keep windows and doors closed. But that only helps if they keep the smoke out. Marina Vista's oldest apartment buildings were built about 50 years ago. And about a half a dozen residents, including Shanchera, told me the smoke comes right in through the flimsy windows. It got a lot of aluminum windows. I feel like we need double-painted windows or something. Last fall's fires landed Takira back in the hospital yet again. I'm ABC 7 News meteorologist Mike Nico. Welcome to our 18th consecutive spare the air day. Let's show you what's And these going on. latest fires, sparked by lightning in a ring around the entire Bay Area, have driven millions of people to shelter indoors. About a week into the bad air days, I dropped by to check on Takira and her mom. Shantiera says she's been stressed. Very, very, very worried. <laughs> she's hopeful, though, that her daughter's drugs are helping. The steroids that they have been giving her expanded her lungs, maybe. Still, to be cautious, they've been taking refuge at Shantiera's mom's in Contra Costa County. Even though outside air quality there has been lousy, too, her place has better windows and doors. She lives in a two-story, so it's like a lot more space for her. And when you enter in her house, it's just pure, clean, <laughs> clean air. So yeah. Asthma has been part of Takira's life for years now. Inhaling that tiny, harmful particulate matter from wildfire smoke, that's just one of her many triggers. But it's joined the list of forces outside her control that cause her anxiety. I worry about fires a lot. Like, even today, I'm kind of still worried about fire. During my last visit, Takira is quiet. She says she feels fine. 
But a few minutes later, when I'm sitting in my car, my phone rings. It's Shantira. She says Takira just told her that her chest has been hurting at night. She's been keeping it to herself because she's worried about going back to the hospital. For the California Report, I'm Lee Romney in Vallejo. Firefighters continue to battle more than 20 wildfires around the state of California, and many of the men and women on their front lines are volunteers who are needed now more than ever. More than two-thirds of the nation's firefighters hold down day jobs and respond to emergencies in their local communities. KQED science reporter Leslie McClurg has the story of two courageous volunteers in Napa County. An hour and a half northeast of San Francisco, multiple work crews sever blackened tree limbs at Spanish Flat Mobile Home Villa. Brandon North steps onto a concrete slab that was his home. Somewhere over here in this concrete pad, there's uh, footprints from my baby brother. He picks up a warped piece of metal. A cloud of ash settles into the imprints of two tiny feet. About a stone's throw away, Becca Brown Diener steps over a twisted birdcage on her family's property. This was my uh, twin brother's room, but now that's all gone. She tries to wave away tears. Brandon hugs her. They've been dating since high school. We would always go over to his house, play, you know, play board games, and our, our families are really close. So we did a lot of movie nights, dinner parties, camping trips. Now Becca is 23 and Brandon is 25. The young couple live together about 10 minutes up the road. They're campground hosts on Lake Berryessa and they're trained as firefighters. As a volunteer, Brandon doesn't have to respond to every emergency page he receives, but he always does. I feel obligated. Um, if you're able to go, you should go, whether it's small or big, to whoever called that's the worst day of their life. A few weeks ago, Brandon and Becca were asleep in their small white trailer when a lightning storm exploded in the sky. I'm terrified of lightning, so I was just kind of videotaping it and I woke him up and I was just recording it. And the radio started going crazy. We did have a couple small fires start. Becca and Brandon headed to the fire station. It was the first time Becca answered a call that wasn't a medical emergency. By the afternoon, the small fires had turned into infernos. Seeing fire for the first time like that, I was terrified. Walls of flame, 100 feet high, swept over ridges. Becca jumped on an engine, and Brandon headed to the front line. The next day, flames swept down the grassy hill toward Lake Berryessa. Brandon and Becca spent all day and all night cutting back brush and tree limbs and saved the campground. At dawn, they celebrated. So I was excited because I like fighting fire. But then when it started to get into housing areas and stuff, the excitement went away and more of a anger started to set in, I guess. The next night, he fought the fire at the mobile home park where he and Becca grew up and where their families still live. It was hard seeing this place burning down and just trying to do my job at the same time. When I came here, everything was fully engulfed. As white, hot fire incinerated trailers, Brandon helped the few remaining residents to flee. They were people he'd known his whole life. After everyone escaped, he climbed into his truck and called Becca to tell her their family's homes were gone. My heart broke. Um, I just felt devastated and hopeless. I didn't know 
what really to do. And then when I came home, it was kind of safe where our trailer is. Came in, she was sitting there crying, and I was holding her hand and kind of already on a knee. So I was like, well, it's in my pocket. He's talking about the ring. He grabbed it to make sure it didn't burn. She's a mess. Might make her feel better. Finally, he asked me to marry him. (laughs) He wasn't planning on popping the question, nor did they have time to digest the big news. They continued to fight the fire for two more weeks. Brandon says he slept about eight hours in the first seven days. Now they're helping their families resettle outside of California. Becca would love to go too, but Brandon shakes his head. Not only is this home... I guess uh, Cal's way of saying it, this is where the action is, so it's where I want to be. They hope to celebrate their engagement before the next wildfire strikes Northern California. For the California Report, I'm Leslie McClurg in Napa County. One of the fires that's been burning in San Mateo and Santa Cruz counties has scorched California's first state park, Big Basin. Nearly all of the park's historic buildings have been lost. But the good news is many of its enormous old-growth redwoods are expected to survive, as they have for centuries. Sasha Koka presented this collection of stories and memories about the park for the California Report. Those giant trees have inspired lots of folks in different ways. Listener Tom Taylor composed this piece of music called Big Basin Breakdown as an ode to the park. Shortly after high school, my friends and I went camping to Big Basin, had a wonderful night. Unfortunately, the next day, I went home and my mom handed me my draft notice. So surprise, I had to spend a little time in the Army before going to college. But I always had such a fondness for Big Basin. What a beautiful place. Tom says his tribute to the giant trees really helped launch his career and make him the musician he is today. It did take me to Europe and beyond. I got to meet the president of Bavaria, the mayor of Munich, all sorts of dignitaries, just because of a wild night with some of my high school friends back in 1972. Tom's piece is being performed here by musicians from San Jose State with the Kronos Quartet and David Grisman on mandolin. We're going to play it for you now while other listeners share their memories of Big Basin. Hi, my name is Ariane Lozano. I was born in the Philippines and moved to the U.S. at 13. And in seventh grade, one of my teachers organized this camping trip for us. I just remember thinking to myself, getting to Big Basin, wow, I have never seen such gigantic trees. I mean, I was just in awe and stunned by how beautiful the redwoods were. My name is Kim Baker, and I worked at Big Basin Redwoods State Park as a park ranger in the early 2000s. The park has 17 or so residences uh, where staff live year-round. It's kind of a unique experience because you really form a close bond with your neighbors. We lived in the Sky Meadow neighborhood. Uh, Unfortunately, it was destroyed in the fire. It was a special place to live, especially with children. It was just a great place for the kids to be able to play. They could run freely back and forth to different houses. Everybody celebrated birthdays together. We really felt like it wasn't just us. We were part of uh, many generations of park families that had grown up in that neighborhood and a long tradition. And uh, I think a lot of people are reaching out to each other right now to console each other over the loss of of that special part of the park. Hi, this is Jessica from Pleasanton. Big Basin is just so near and dear to our family's hearts. 
being Latinos and first-generation Americans, we really feel that it's important to expose our boys of color to nature, and Big Basin really played a key role in that. This was really our way of breaking social barriers and constructs for them. Growing up in the Bay Area, our mother made it a point to take us on hikes, which is really remarkable, being that it was something she really didn't do growing up in an impoverished Nicaragua. And Big Basin has really helped us do that and teach our boys to respect nature, which we really hope in turn they can apply that to their fellow human. We're just so heartbroken what's happened to Big Basin due to the fires. But we also realize that this is just part of nature and it'll survive this disaster as it's done for tens of thousands of years. So I just wanna say thank you, Big Basin, and I can't wait to go back. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.